Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. All right, um, page six of your order of worship. Uh, but briefly, let me, let me highlight an announcement that Mac didn't hit on. It's not, it's not an announcement, just something to point out. Turn to page eight of your order of worship and um, look down there at the bottom of our uh, financial numbers. You will see that our monthly goal for giving, budgeted goal for giving in January was 134940 you will notice uh, we had a good January, and I want to give thanks to the Lord for that and uh, let you know that um, that, that is uh, reflect, what's, what's being reflected there is that we received a legacy gift um, from a dear a member of our congregation, a beloved member of our congregation that passed away um, a while ago. It's, it's been a while, uh, but it took a while for the estate to get settled and whatnot. And so we just received that gift. And I'm telling you that uh, uh, first to just give thanks to the Lord and His goodness and provision, but also to just uh, remind you that um, consider your estate, as you consider your estate, as you consider the legacy that you want to leave, as you're getting those things in order, uh, consider your local church as a way to ensure uh, that your legacy goes on for generations to come. Um, there is a way to set that up. I know I don't understand it at all, but there is a way for when you die, we get money. I don't know how it works. Bobby Pepiot does. So reach out to Bobby, and, and if you have questions about that, he'd love to talk to you about that. Um, but we want to give thanks to the Lord for that and his provision, especially providentially in light of my sermon uh, this morning, which is, um, which is calling all of us to uh, give with such a legacy as that. Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined every one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they, said, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The word of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we need your mercy every Sunday we come. Every sermon we hear, uh, we need your Holy Spirit to open our minds and hearts and applications to your work. Um, you must make us teachable. And, and we need that every week. But Lord, certainly when 
the scriptures force us to look at some of the more prevalent idols of our culture. We need an extra measure of your grace, um, an extra measure of teachability, of conviction, of encouragement. Um, so, Lord, I'm, I'm just committing that to you. I'm, I'm praying for your spirit to come and move among us. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to stand behind this uh, sacred pulpit and deliver your word, but humbled by that. Um, and the weight of that, I pray that I would, yes, yes, what I would say would honor you, but even, Lord, how I say it. Um, take these very fallible words that I have written here, um, my observations of your infallible words, and do what only you can do. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have been following along, you may recall two weeks ago I preached a sermon from Acts 11 um, that engaged the question of what 21st century Christians could learn from the ones who were first called Christians, which happened um, in the previous passage. It's the first time followers of Jesus were called Christians. So I asked, why don't we learn from the first Christians? And I shared in that sermon uh, two principles that that I I felt like we could learn from them. Um, However, originally that sermon had three uh, points to it. But as I got into the third point, I quickly realized um, that it was just too important and it needed, um, it needed its, to be its own sermon uh, on its own. And so, so I left myself these last few verses here of Acts 11 to engage that this morning. And what we see here is it's a window into the generosity of the early church. Now, if there is any lesson that prosperous, wealthy, American Christians need to learn from our ancestors. It's what do we do with all this money God has given us? Now, I want to be sensitive that some of you here or or watching online would say, I don't have this money you speak of. I don't feel wealthy at all. And I understand that. And I understand that there are some struggling right now. I want to be sensitive to that. But please do know, please do know that compared to uh, history of followers of Jesus and compared to globally the followers of Jesus, yes, if you're at this church, you are wealthy. If you live in this country, you are wealthy. And so this is an important question for us to answer. And I don't take the question lightly. I think American Christians who have and enjoy so much live with what can only be described as a nagging low-grade guilt that we are not being faithful stewards of what God has given us. Yes, I am sure there are those who are hardened, greedy folks in American churches who serve wealth and not Jesus. But I think by and large, we are a bunch of confused and convicted Christians when it comes to this issue. Who, who, who want to know what to do with what we have. Preachers are notoriously scared to preach on money uh, because they think their people will get mad at them for it, which, you know, th- that typically is the case. Whatever the reigning idols of culture are, it's, it's scary to touch on them. I, and I get that. But that's not been my experience at all. It really hasn't. I think followers of Jesus are desperate 
for discipleship in this area in particular. That's been my experience with you, quite frankly. Every time money comes up in Scripture, I obviously need to preach on it. And the inconvenient thing for us Americans is it comes up a lot. And therefore, I've preached on it a lot. But what I have always sensed is a real receptiveness to my preaching on this topic. I've never felt anger from you all for getting up into the money thing. I think we Christians who live in this strange era of affluence are desperate to know what do we do? What do we do with it? If that's you, this sermon is for you. If that's not you, a brief word. If that's not you, if you don't welcome this discussion because you don't want to put your money and your possessions and your lifestyle and your generosity and your giving and so forth under the microscope, then may I say lovingly, but candidly, I fear for you. All I know to say is that Jesus is very clear on this one. It is black and white on this one. You cannot serve God in money. And the number one sign that you are serving money, not God, is that you don't want God touching your money. If that's you, I pray very soon that your idol will fail you, that you will come to your senses and you will give your life to Almighty God, not the Almighty Dollar. That's my one stern rebuke in the sermon that I wanted to just express here at the beginning so that I can now speak to who I believe is the vast majority of us. The vast majority of us who I think genuinely want help, genuinely want discipleship in this area, and that's what our pastors is here for. I want us to look at what the first Christians did with their money in order to disciple us in this age of so much money. And what we're going to see here is very simple. Sacrificial giving and selfless giving. Sacrificial and selfless. Now, before we get to those, I want to show you something that I think makes this particularly, this little passage here particularly compelling and applicable to where we find ourselves. I'm fascinated by it this week. Look at verses 27 to 28. Now, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. All right, now, as I said uh, many times in Acts thus far, do not let the uniqueness, the, the, the supernatural uniqueness of the early church era uh, distract us from the message. No, this sort of uh, prophetic activity that was taking place during the establishment of the New Covenant Church is not normative for the life of the church, historically speaking. So put that aside. The more compelling thing to see here is that we know from history that this actually did take place. This came true. The early church was literally let in on, um, made aware of, that, they, that there was a famine coming that would dramatically devastate the ancient world. And because of this, they were um, able and ready themselves to be an enormous resource to the poor and needy during that devastating famine. God literally let the early church know there's a famine coming so that you can take care of people. And historians have demonstrated this actual, that actual part of the early church history uh, was a key to, sh- to the Christian movement, uh, explaining how the Christian movement exploded onto the scene of history. But here's why I think this is interesting for us, okay? I'm not claiming to be a prophet, but I don't think I'm alone when I say at some point what has transpired 
over this past year is going to catch up to us. It already has to some of you, by the way. I want to be very sensitive to that. I mean that. Um, Some are right now facing serious financial hardship, and a sermon like this might be hard. And if that's you, here here would be my application to to you if if you're facing financial ruin. Uh, my application is don't be ashamed to reach, uh, reach out to us and let us help you. We have a mercy fund, and we would like to use those funds to help you. So if that's you, um, we want to help. But for most of us, here's the point I'm making. For most of us, this year was not the nightmare we thought it would be, financially speaking. The market survived and even thrived. Government keeps sending me checks I don't need. Portfolios of the wealthy are better than ever. Good news for you on a whim. Bobby Pepiot decided to invest the entire church's general funds in GameStop. And that worked out well for us. I'm kidding. Seriously, this nightmare we thought was coming around this time last year. The storm that we thought was coming has not come. But, here's my point. I don't know anyone who thinks this is sustainable. How much debt can we take? How much money can we print? How many small businesses can keep the doors open before the famine comes? I'm not a prophet. I hope I am wrong. I pray that I am wrong. But this moment feels, this moment that we're in feels very similar to where the church finds itself in Acts 11. The famine is coming. What are we, Church of Jesus, going to do about it? Let's watch what they did. First, Notice their sacrificial giving. It says, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief. Everyone according to his ability. If you are familiar with economic theory and history, that may sound familiar to you and that might disturb you. From each according to his ability to each according to his needs, Karl Marx. And so we come to another passage in Acts that sounds like socialism. And I'll say it, the same thing I've said in each of these passages, it's not socialism. This is not state-mandated redistribution of wealth. It says that the disciples themselves determined this is private ownership, freely choosing to give. But, as I have also said each time we've gotten to one of these passages in Acts, just because it's not mandated redistribution of wealth doesn't mean that the early church community wasn't freely participating in ways that are eerily similar to it. It says what it says. Everyone, according to his ability, determined to send relief. And it's the according to our ability that gets to the heart of Christian generosity. What Jesus makes undeniably clear in the story of the widow's offering is that he measures the sacrifice of our generosity, not the amount. Completely indifferent to the amount. He looks at sacrifice. This is what frustrates, speaking candidly with you all, this is what frustrates me about the whole tithing question. It's it's asking the wrong question. It turns our generosity into a formulaic number game rather than a sacrifice. Of course you should be giving 10% to the work of Jesus Christ's church. Of course, that's where we start. The real question is where you are, where God has you, how much ability do you have to give above and beyond and just get crazy with generosity? 
And so I want to give a word here to the wealthy among us, if I may. Of course, I want every single person in our church to apply this. If the, if the, if the widow story taught us anything, yes, uh, Jesus does not care about amount. He celebrates all sacrifices, especially the prodigious sacrifices that he blessed with her. All of that's true. But here's what I would like to say to the wealthy among us. And how you define that, I don't know. We'll just let the Spirit define that. You know, everyone has unique gifts that God has given them to bless his church. Every single one of you here has a unique gift that he brought you to his church with. So, like, it's been on display this morning. Uh, Stephen leading us in worship. He's the only one in this room that can do it like that. It's just gift. He just is. Uh, we had uh, Jason Doval, who's playing the trumpet. Nobody can play the trumpet like Jason. He's, he, he's a professor of trumpet at UK. I don't know if that's the right term, Jason, but you, he teaches the UK with trumpets. Um, nobody else can do that. We get strings and voices that... What are they doing? They're saying, this is a unique gift I have, and I'm going to use it to bless the church, to serve the work of the church. Here's my question for you. Have you ever considered your wealth through that lens? Have you ever considered your finances as your unique contribution to the work of the church? You have a gift that speaking candidly, not many people have. You have the ability to do right now for our church what almost nobody else can do. What if you actually took this verse seriously? Crazy thought. If the wealthy among us considered this verse, each according to their ability, and applied it in the same way that, that anybody in our church, the young, the, the, the struggling, everybody according to their ability, if they took each according to their ability and actually applied it, the mission and vision of this church would be literally resourced and empowered for generations to come. That's not an overstatement. Now, I, don't want to, I, want, I do not want you to feel like I'm picking on you or shaming you or anything like that. I'm really not. Uh, shame, shame, shaming you into giving is the word. That is not gospel. That's not Christianity. Here's why I'm singling the wealthy among us out. In my experience talking to folks, each according to their ability is a lot easier when the ability is smaller. This is the unique thing about wealth. When ability becomes excessive, it seems crazy, perhaps even reckless, to take a verse like this seriously. A mentor of mine was once, um, he once pastored an incredibly wealthy church, one of the wealthiest congregations in our nation. And there's a billionaire in his congregation. And after preaching a sermon similar to this one, billionaire and his church set up a meeting with him and, and, and said, I want to talk about your sermon. Listen, I loved it. I was convicted. But I just want you to know I can't give like that. And uh, my, my mentor said, why not? How come everybody else can give like that, but you can't? And he said, you don't understand. If I were to actually tithe, like if, if you wanted 10% of this, I would, by myself, cover the entire budget, more than the budget. I, I don't know what we would do with that much money. And the rest of the congregation wouldn't feel the need to give any more because one person's covered the entire thing. It just would not be good for the church. And my mentor said, why don't you give it a try? And let's see what happens. Why don't you give it a try? Why don't you just, one year, 
one year give at the same level of sacrifice I ask everyone else in our church to give. And let's just see what God does. And he said, all right, you got a deal. I'm going to do it. Because of that, one decision, an entire church planning network was created. And the PCA now has an ever-growing presence in the western portion of the United States where previously there was nothing. The PCA used to be a, a predominantly southern denomination. And we've had this explosion moving west because one person said, all right, I'll apply the verse. Now listen, we've got no billionaires. If there's any on that camera, you're welcome to apply this sermon to us. But let me just say what we all know to be true. Can I, I'll just say what we all know to be true. There is absolutely enough wealth in this congregation that if we all committed to give according to our ability, like this verse is saying, this church would be out of debt, fully staffed, you know, fully funded ministries, expanded mission, a fount of mercy to the community around us, a funded bluegrass network, planting churches all over central Kentucky. That is the reality. Now, this level of sacrificial generosity is only possible, and I know this is, I know this is a crazy sermon to consider applying. It's only possible if we embrace the second principle we see here, selfless giving. So, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. This is where this passage gets really crazy. Remember, this is the, the, the newly established church in Antioch. Antioch is a major city of Rome's empire. Incredibly wealthy culture. Incredibly wealthy. Antioch is going to be just fine with the coming famine. And so the church doesn't uh, give to store up a massive rainy day fund for them, which nobody would have blamed them for doing. There, there's a famine coming. That's scary stuff. Instead... They gave each according to their ability and sent it to the impoverished communities in Judea. And this is where it gets even crazier. Remember what's transpired recently in Acts. The gospel has been transforming the Jewish world who hates the Gentile world. But in the past couple of chapters, we've seen it break through into the Gentile world, most significantly here in Antioch. And so now, the rich Gentile believers are giving their money to the Jewish communities that once hated them. This is, this is selflessness on, an, on, on a level we can't understand, which I think is an important lesson for us. You know, when we are willing to be generous, when it's towards things that in turn will benefit us, this is where the new phenomenon of designated giving um, comes from. That is a uniquely American Christianity thing because it's so American, is it not? I'll give, but I want to go here. I want to, it's my money, and I want to tell you what to do with my money. And that designation is normally something that will benefit me or something that I really care about. Now listen, part of that is beautiful and understandable. Of course you have things that you're passionate about, and of course you want to support those things. I'm not shaming that. But notice this little nuance that's, that's going to be really tough for us. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders. It's the first time Presbyterianism shows up in the early church, and I mean that quite literally. Here's the literal Greek. Sending it to the presbyteros. Pres- elder elder in, in, in Greek is presbyteros. Let me tell you what this means. 
It was not sent to the elders of the church for a vote on what to do with the money. It was entrusted to them to make wise and godly decisions. The first time the concept of church submission to plurality of elders has to do with submitting their money to their leadership. I could not get over that this week. I'd never seen that. We're just going to give. And remember, this is huge amounts, each according to their ability. We're going to give, and we just trust you elders with that money. Now, important point to make. America Church, American Church is full of examples of those in authority abusing funds entrusted to them. I mean, it's, it's in the news every day. But usually, and I'd say almost exclusively, it's independent churches or ministries with no systems of authority or accountability in place. So let me assure you, that's not your church. It simply isn't. It can't be your church, even if we wanted it to be our church, because we're a Presbyterian church. We are not led by me. We're not led by elders who are just echo chamber yes men to me. We are led by elders who submit to one another under ecclesial authority of other elders who make up a presbytery. The problem is not authority. The problem is abuse of authority. Now, bringing it back to this idea of selfless giving. Let me tell you, what your elders, who we entrust our giving to, let me, let me tell you what your elders have decided to do. And I love them for it. Bless them for it. They have renounced the broken model of churches getting bigger and bigger and bigger just for the sake of having a big church with an ever-increasing budget that we members of TCPC get to enjoy. No, thank you. We'll have none of that. Instead, your elders have determined that we are going to be a resource church. What this means, practically speaking, is that we always want to stay within the 800 to 1,200 member range. When we start pressing that, it's time to plant another church, not build a bigger sanctuary. Now, yes, of course, a congregation our size has some needs that need to be filled. We do need some things here. We need a family pastor. We need full-time female leader on staff. There are renovations to the sanctuary that we do need. But let me be very clear where the end game of this is. Your money going to Judea, to use the language of the passage. Church plants that you will never attend. Missions and mercy that you may never see. Lives change that you won't get to hear about until heaven. We are not going to be an ingrown megachurch. We are going to be a multiplying movement for the glory of Jesus and the good of the bluegrass and even unto the ends of the earth. And we need you to fund it. I got a message this week from a despairing soul who is not a part of our church community, but who has uh, been watching online. And... uh, Sorry. She is, uh, she's in a bad place, and I don't know her. I don't know her. She just sent me a message and, um, and just told me how much our church has been a solace to her from afar uh, during this pandemic where she's lonely and, and battling addictions and suicidal, and, and she ended her thank you to me. You know, she thanked me not just for me, for the church, for everything. And she ended it by saying, I've had a really rough week, even battling some suicidal thoughts. And she said, I'm really looking forward to your sermon on Sunday. I really need it. And I thought to myself, well, great. I'm preaching on giving money to the church. That's going to help her. And then I thought, no, that's exactly what she needs. And countless despairing souls need. They need our sacrifice to give. 
selflessly to the work of the church that we continue to be a solace to her and countless other despairing souls that you'll get to hear about in heaven. So here's, um, here's what we learned first from the first Christians. I don't know why I'm crying in a sermon about money. <laughs> uh, okay, here's what we learned. Um, for these first Christians who in their wildest dreams could never imagine followers of Jesus having this amount of wealth and resources and what we could do. We see generosity that is sacrificial, each according to their ability, and generosity that is selfless. We're going to send it to Judea. Sacrificial and selfless. Sound like anyone you know? For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And that's not talking about money. Our passage defines sacrificial as each according to their ability. Only the Lord Jesus has the ability to save. He is able, you are not. And he gave according to his ability, which was giving his very life, embracing the eternal poverty of the cross. For whom? Our passage defines selfless giving as the rich Antiochs giving their money to the very ones who hated them. That's something else, but that's nothing compared to while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His sacrifice for those at enmity with him. Beloved of Jesus, why would we ever consider taking this crazy sermon seriously? But because we're beloved of Jesus. I freely admit that in our culture and in our sinful greed, I'm putting myself with you. In our culture, And in our sinful tendencies, to actually do what this is calling us to do is crazy. Not as crazy as the gospel. This is what we do because this is what has been done for us. Let me thank him and ask him to help us. Jesus, thank you for um, the demonstration of your selfless sacrificial giving. We, the impoverished ones at enmity with you, do not deserve it. But you who are rich became poor so that we by your poverty might become eternally rich in the heavens. Lord, fill us with that. No shame leaving here. Lord, shame doesn't. Shame does not motivate. Guilt does not motivate. Grace motivates. So we're free You've forgiven any and every way that we have squandered our resources and lived greedy lifestyle. You, you, you can handle that. We're forgiven. Set us free that we might change. And Lord, I just pray. I pray that you would raise up um, the resources and funds necessary that this church, even if there's a famine coming, that this church would continue to be a fountain of your gospel to the world around us. Now as we come to the table, would you bless the holy sacrament and feed our souls with your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.